Good morning and greetings from the land of 11 nations, or as everyone else calls it, Wisconsin. As I just said, I am doing fantastic this morning, and I sincerely hope all of you are as well. Well, with so much going on in the world today, and there is so much going on, I just thought that maybe we could spend a couple of minutes together and just focus on what's going on in our little part of it and see if we can make sense of that. To each and every one of you who spend a little time every week listening to this podcast, I thank you very much. Time is our most precious commodity, and I sincerely, truly appreciate you spending yours with me. If you'd like to get in touch with me, ring me up if you have my number. I'm in my office pretty much uh, all day, every day. Uh, if you don't have my number, we have a couple of ways for us to get in contact. My Gmail address is moneycucksick at gmail.com. I'm really good at getting back to people if you Gmail me. I'm pretty active on a Chipotle Facebook page, along with LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, and of course Twitter. Weird thing about Twitter, though, is my page is blank. I think everyone I followed was a bot. I really enjoy hearing from Ho-Chunks, and now a lot of you now, you don't agree with what I have to say, and or think, and you let me know that. I truly appreciate you sharing your comments with me. It gives me an opportunity to sharpen my argument in a constructive manner. So, please, keep sending in your thoughts and ideas. A comment from a listener brought something to my attention, so I thought I would address it here. Now, as a lot of you have come to realize, this podcast focuses on our Ho-Chunk Nation. There are so many people writing and talking about indigenous issues that affect all of North America that to throw my hat in the arena is akin to throwing a hot dog down an alley. No one's going to notice. But this issue could possibly affect the whole junk nation and is it affected me personally a couple of times. <coughs> I'm referring, of course, to the ICWA, the Indian Children Welfare Act, the, ha- the Halen versus Bracken case in particular that is presently before the U.S. Supreme Court. Oral arguments were heard the other day and it'll be a while before a decision is reached. Now I've read numerous articles penned concerning this matter, a lot of repetition really. I did it in an effort to educate myself on this issue. But I keep returning to an article penned by Jen Dearenwater from the online publication Truth Out. If you'd like to read it yourself, it was published November 12th of this year, I could cherry pick uh, points. I could cherry pick the points out she raised that I think are pertinent, but she does a great, such a great job that I thought I would just read the entire article verbatim. Anywhere colonizers have invaded indigenous children. <clears throat> Anywhere colonizers have invaded, indigenous children have been separated from their communities whether through boarding or residential schools, child protective services, or outright murder. The theft of indigenous children destroys tribal nations, which is is what's at stake in the U.S. Supreme Court case, Holland v. Brackeen, heard Wednesday. The case will determine the fate of the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act, which was passed with the aim of halting cultural genocide by requiring, among other things, (coughs) that if a state court determines 
that certain Native children must be removed from their homes, a Native family or tribal member be given priority placement, and tribes have the right to be involved in a process. Oral arguments in the case went on for over three hours the Supreme Court considered claims by the plaintiffs, who are attacking the anti-genocide measure by arguing that it furthers child abuse, constitutes reverse racism, and undermines states' rights. The plaintiffs are arguing that the ICWA violates the Constitution in multiple ways. If the Supreme Court sides with them, the case could destroy decades of legal precedent. As Vox notice, as Vox notes, the Burkine plaintiffs make one argument so aggressive that it could potentially invalidate much of the last century of federal law, including landmark cases such as the Affordable Care Act, the ban on whites-only lunch counters, and the federal ban on child labor. In a worst-case scenario, the court could usher in a new termination era in which tribes' nation-to-nation relationship with the U.S. would be terminated, as was done in the 1950s and 60s. Tribal sovereignty and nations would be eliminated with disastrous consequences for Native people. Fawn Sharp, National Congress of American Indians President and Vice President of Quinault Nation, told Truth Out, I think to some degree we are in a termination era. Mentioning the Supreme Court's ruling last session in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, where it gave states criminal jurisdiction over reservations. Beginning in 1953, the federal government used a series of methods to end its nation-to-nation relationship with tribes. It began to break up tribal nations in a number of ways, including through their relocation. The 1952 Urban Indian Relocation Program encouraged Native people to leave their lands with the promise of good jobs, housing, and education. But the federal government once again betrayed its promise, leaving many in poverty. By 1960, 33,000 American Indian and Alaska Native people were relocated. Presently, 71% of American Indians and Alaska Natives live in urban areas. In 1960, Congress also attacked tribal criminal jurisdiction through Public Law 280, which placed federal jurisdiction over crime involving a non-native into the hands of some states. The federal government didn't provide funding or resources to the states, furthering the fraught relationship between tribes, law enforcement, and state governments. Under PL 280, the Bureau of Indian Affairs no longer funds tribal court operations, placing more burden on tribes themselves. Worse yet, the federal government terminated a federal recognition of 109 tribes Primarily in Oregon, 62 tribes terminated with nine federally recognized tribes remaining. In California, 44 tribes terminated and 110 federally recognized tribes remaining. Through termination, the government moved over 1.3 million acres of land from trust status during this period, and over 13,200 tribal members lost tribal affiliation. Some tribes have since had their federal recognition restored, but some have yet to recover their lands. Much of their lost land was sold to non-natives and cannot easily be placed back in tribal control. Without a land base, as was argued by the anti-ICWA plaintiffs in court, we're no longer tribes, so our sovereignty doesn't apply. During this pre-ICWA time, native children were continued to be removed from their communities through both boarding schools and child welfare services. 
Congress enacted the Indian Child Welfare Act in an attempt to counter cultural genocide. Enacted by Congress in 1978 after decades of native resistance to tribal termination policies, the nonpartisan ICWA was intended to strengthen and preserve native families and culture. Under ICWA, children welfare placement cases involving native children who are enrolled or, in el or eligible for enrollment in federally recognized tribes must be heard in tribal courts when possible and a child's tribe is permitted to be involved in state court proceedings. The law also requires testimony from expert witnesses who are familiar with native culture before a child can be removed from their home. If a child is removed, ICWA requires that they are placed with extended family members, other tribal members, or other native families prior to placement in non-native homes. Prior to ICWA, Studies found that 25 to 35 percent of all Native children were removed from their home by state child welfare and private adoption agencies. Of those, 85 of those 85 percent were placed with non-Native families, even with good homes with Natives were available. Relatives were available. According to the National Indian Child Welfare Association, ICWA lessens the trauma of removal by promoting placement with family and community. Positive and continuing connections to one's family, community, and culture are key factors in ensuring health and well-being. Even with the ICWA in place, however, Native children are still removed from their homes at a rate two to three times that of white children and aren't often placed with relatives or other Native families. Native families are the most likely to have children removed from their homes as a first resort and the least likely to be offered family support interventions to keep their child. In a press conference following the hearing, Chairman Tahasi Hill of the United Tribe of Wisconsin stated, ICWA helps our most vulnerable families that find themselves in state child welfare proceedings. The law makes sure there are active efforts to help families reunify when safe and possible and make sure tribes are a part of the proceedings so they can provide resources to family at an early stage, something we know leads to family reunification. Rafael Lorenzo, co-founder and director of the Reproductive Justice Organization, Indigenous Women Rising, told Truth Out that a ruling against the ICWA could also result in a loss of trust and treaty health care. When Native children are adopted to non-white families, <coughs> they're not able to exercise their treaty rights to IHS, the Indian Health Service, she said. A generation or two down the road, our people won't even be able to access IHS. All three states involved in this case are among some of the worst ranked for, for women and children. <coughs> The threat to indigenous sovereignty posed by Holland versus Brackeen. Despite being the gold standard of child welfare, the ICWA has faced more legal challenges than the Affordable Care Act. The Supreme Court consolidated four other ICWA-related cases for briefing and oral argument into Holland versus Brackeen. Three states, Louisiana, Texas, and Indiana, and seven individuals have challenged ICWA claiming that it creates an illegal race-based federal child custody system that states are required to implement for all Native children, even those that don't reside on reservations. Texas argued in the court that they suffer a classic pocketbook injury 
in implementing ICWA. Justice Elena Kagan stated during Texas' argument that this is a matter for Congress, not the courts. The U.S. Constitution recognizes tribes as sovereign nations with an inherent right to self-govern and gives Congress authority to work with tribes. Tribal citizenship is a political classification that allows for self-determination. It's not a racial classification. At the center of this case are Chad and Jennifer Brackeen, a wealthy white Christian couple who returned their, foster, their first foster child because the child was too difficult. They then fostered a native child, knowing they couldn't adopt a child because of ICWA. They fostered anyway, as Jennifer wrote in her blog about her family. I thought a baby for three months would be a nice way to get our feet wet again. The Brackeens, who are now also attempting to adopt another ICWA-protected child, decided they wanted to adopt the child, and a court battle soon ensued. With the pro bono help of legal firm Gibson Dunn, the Brackeens had their case placed in the favorable court of former President George W. Bush, appointee Judge Reed O'Connor who's infamous for ruling in alignment with right-wing causes. The podcast This Land by Cherokee Nation citizen Rebecca Nagel details how Gibson Dunn cherry-picked the right family and court to overturn ICWA, a decision that has nothing to do with the welfare of Native children. Holland is the latest front in a systemic assault on Native sovereignty being waged by Gibson Dunn and other right-wing lawyers to the benefit of their corporate clients. Matthew McGill, who represented the Brackeens in court, argued that Congress doesn't have the power to treat these children like property. McGill also argued on behalf of Energy Transfer Partners Dakota Access Pipeline in court, a pipeline that was fought heavily by indigenous youth. The three states attempting to overturn ICWA all have large oil and gas industries. Chris Stanbrook, president of the Indian Land Tenure Foundation, a national community-based organization serving American Indians, nations, and people in the recovery and control of the rightful homelands, told truth out. The very basic premise of the Marshall Trilogy cases was about recognizing the sovereignty of Native nations and their identity as political entities, not just a different race. The cases were decided to protect the tribes from interference and takings by, from the, by the states. ICWA was passed to prevent a taking of the most precious resource Indian country has, our children, and hence our future. Sadly, only Justice Gorsuch seems to have any understanding at all about Indian law. Sharp had a similar opinion of the court based on the hearing that they don't even understand the basic concept of inherent sovereignty and have the inherent rights of every single native child born in this generation. On the other side, the Libertarian Cato and Goldwater Institute claimed in a court brief that ICWA is not a benefit to Indian children, but a handicap to their safety and well-being. ICWA is widely supported by Native and non-Native stakeholders. 497 federally recognized tribes and 62 Native organizations, 23 states and D.C., 87 congresspeople, 27 child welfare and adoption organization, and many others signed on to 21 briefs submitted to the court in favor of ICWA. Chairman Charles Martin of the Morongo Band of Mission Indians, one of the tribes involved in the case, 
set outside the court. Look around you today and you see tribes united in making our case. Sharp added, we know that this case is so much more than our children. There is dark money out there that is strategically tar targeting our children, our natural resources, our sacred sites in a way that they, the plaintiffs, want to continue enrich profits at our expense. Gibson Dunn represents two of the three largest casinos in the world. In January 2022, it filed a legal complaint in district court complaining that tribal gaming is unconstitutional. It used the same argument in this complaint as the Brackeen case. In a press release, the National Indian Gaming Association, an intertribal association of federally recognized tribes, said, While not grounded in law or fact, we take this challenge head-on because of what's at stake. For 50 years, more than 240 tribal governments have used Indian gaming to revive our communities. With so much at stake, facing a hostile court in opposition with endless coffers, it's hard to be optimistic. But Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. believes that despite the odds, a win is possible. I think certainly we will win because the facts and the law are on the side of Indian country, he told Truth Out. However, Indian country is wise to remain vigilant because the federal government has taken away, has terminated, has disposed. I think um, that pretty much says it all. Okay, I'm giving you your allowance for the week, but once that's gone, you'll have to use your own money. Mom, we're, we're both grown adults, so you don't need to do that. Speak for yourself. I got the idea from Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison. Okay, um, who's a what now? They give Rewards Club members rewards play for using the Rewards Club card while playing. Oh, so it's kind of like cash then. Yes, it's like casino cash. Free spins given to you by the casino. Here, let me show you. With Rewards Play, you can play with free credits on behalf of the casino. Here's how. Insert your card in cash, enter your pen, choose Rewards Play, and begin to play. Remember to have enough cash to cover the bet you want to play. Once your Rewards Play is gone, you can play with your own money. Cookies? Where'd my Rewards Play go? Visit the Rewards Club booth at Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison. Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison! That was uh, Jen Deerenwater from the online publication Truth Out. I want to say it's a uh, provocative piece that uh, strays from the point at times, but does bring up numerous points confronting indigenous nations. Now, in all honesty, I think the, pre, uh, the preceding article was well done, extremely articulate, and well researched. I'm not going to quibble over her bellicose prose because I do think we as Ho-Chunks have to get heated over some of the issues she raised. There's just one point I would like to raise, not so much as a counterpoint, but a responsibility that was missed. Now, I understand, I think we all understand the trauma that we, as a people and as a nation, have, have endured since the European invasion. Even today, as we fight to maintain our political sovereignty, we walk in two worlds. In spite of all the indignities heap up heaped upon us and those self-inflicted, we as Ho-Chunks we have to do better, uh, do a better job of maintaining our families. This ICWA wouldn't even be an issue if we did a better job of maintaining our families and helping those individuals who need our help. Anecdotally, our family court is rather busy, and this is an indication that we 
do have a continuing problems and struggle, and we need to provide help. Whether it be financial, medical, and or psychiatric, we have to do a better job for our struggling families. We're a small community, and we all know when someone needs help. And I get it, if someone doesn't want help, what's the point? But we are talking about our families, and this is an issue we dare not lose. My own family growing up needed help. It didn't just start at my parents. The seeds for that destruction were planted well before they had children. By the time I came to the picture, things weren't going well. During those early informative years, my brother and sister and I became wards of the state. My sister was adopted by a white family and my brother and I were raised in a series of foster homes and an orphanage. This was at the end of the period of the U.S. government attempting to lure Wongstricks out of the woods and bring them into the cities and have them learn employment skills. Of course, this program did indeed help some indigenous peoples assimilate into the larger culture, but it also did a lot of aid to the restructuring of Wongstrick families and that was, there was no longer a family structure to fall back on in the cities, only government agencies. Would things have been different if my brother and sister and I had been raised by Ho-Chunks? It's water under the bridge and over the dam. The lesson here is that we have to work harder in the preservation of our families so that well-meaning local, state, and federal government officials no longer have the right or the ability to take our children. We see the problems there occurring and we have to take steps as individuals and as a government to rectify the problem. Presently, we are taking steps as a nation, but this is a particularly sticky situation because we are all family and inter interceding, no matter how well-intentioned, is fraught with danger. Well, what have you done, you might ask? Well, like a lot of you, my house has been a revolving door for friends and family ever since my wife and I were married. When my brother and his wife passed, we attempted to gain custody of his daughter. In the end, she was placed with her mother's sister. The ICWA meant nothing to the Children and Family Services of Sauk County. We got a lawyer. We paid money. We even tried to get our state representative involved. Nothing. The moral of that in every story is that we have to do better maintaining our families. This ICWA is a big deal for all Wongshik families and Ho-Chunk families in particular. Holding on to our children is a huge thing as we look forward to our nation's survival as a nation. The first step here is to continue helping families in need, even expanding this effort, so that local, state, and federal officials don't get involved and the possibility our children getting removed is voided. The challenge to the, w, the ICWA is a wake-up call to all indigenous nations. The federal government giveth and the federal government taketh. We have to maintain our families, our clans, our nation with a ferocity that frightens everyone. We went to Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison last night. The jackpots are actually getting pretty big. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Doesn't that sound like fun? Yeah. I don't really get how the jackpots work. Oh, that's okay. It's actually a very common question. You see, there are wide area progressive jackpots that link slot machines from casinos nationwide for a large jackpot win. Large? Like a thousand dollars? Like a hundred thousand dollars? A million? Exactly. Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison actually has had multiple million dollar winners. Hey Dave, tell them about linked progressive jackpots. Sure thing, honey. 
There are linked progressive slot machines at the same casino where local players increase the jackpot amount. And a standalone progressive jackpot increases when a player plays on an individual machine that isn't linked to any other machines. More wine? <laughs> Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison. More ways to win. Find your perfect jackpot. Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison. For the past three years, I have observed conflict between the Ho-Chunk Nation legislature and a Ho-Chunk Nation president. Although, in my humble opinion, the president has done a poor job of messaging to the people what he is trying to accomplish by filing lawsuits against the legislature, my observ observations have been that he has been trying to raise issues of constitutionality in regards to the efforts by the legislature. This seems to me a noble effort. After all, the Ho-Chunk Nation Constitution is the framework of our government, and from what I have read, it is an effort to maintain co-equal branches of government. I have beat it to death, but recent prime examples of legislative overreach have been language proposed in the Legislative Organization Act, the LOA, and the Gaming Ordinance, where the legislature presumed to take full control of all aspects of the nature's business. Executive branch powers, per the Constitution. Obviously, these were cited as unconstitutional, and to date, they have backed off on that effort. I mentioned recently what I see in his attorney malpractice and even allowing this sort of language in these laws. But that's for another day. My beef with our judiciary is that there seems to be a retinence to hear cases that are begging for judiciary interpretation of the Constitution. There is this issue of standing. The lower court has rejected cases that they state lack standing. The court has stated in past cases that the plaintiff did not suffer personal harm. Therefore, the case cannot be heard. Now, I am by no means an expert on civil procedure, and I suppose the Ho-Chunk Nation trial court has a legal argument that because a tribal member who identifies unconstitutional violations perpetrated by the legislature cannot identify a particular harm, they cannot hear the case. But that seems a bit too in the weeds, especially for a formative government navigating its way towards a more perfect government. If a tribal member, like me, can see what are fairly obvious overreach actions by the legislature, why won't the trial court simply hear the arguments, as they have in the past? They could hear the case and simply punt, rather than make an affirmative decision, either in favor or disfavor of the legislature. And the issue could be appealed and heard by the Supreme Court of the Ho-Chunk Nation but to not even hear an issue of constitutionality because there is no standing demonstrated by the plaintiff just has a look of cowardice. I get that the trial court is funded by a fickle legislature, but for goodness sakes, just exercise your power as a co-equal branch of the government, and we, the people, will pressure the legislature to properly fund the judiciary as was intended in the Constitution, provided, of course, that the judici judiciary make it known to the people that they were retaliated against by the legislature. I also have the most rudimentary understanding that civil procedures usually end up with a monetary award being mandated. But what if the plaintiff simply wants the judicial branch of the government to rule on constitutionality? That's all. No money. Just a ruling that better secures constitutional actions of our government. I would argue that when the legislature overreaches in their actions, all Ho-Chunk tribal members are harmed. Couldn't a clever attorney devise an argument 
that clearly demonstrates the harm to all the people when the legislature outsides operates outside of its constitutional boundaries? By violating provisions in the Constitution that was designed to protect and assist our people, isn't that harm enough? Does it require the people to develop a coalition or a group with a catchy name, like the group that illegally received funding for the fake general counsel in Black River last year? My problem with all of this is, why do we, the people, have to contort ourselves into a pretzel just to get a judicial interpretation of our Constitution? Why can't I simply hire an attorney when I see a clear-cut constitutional violation perpetrated by the legislature or the president and have the constitutionality of my argument heard in court? I wouldn't be seeking a monetary reward. I just want a more perfect government that observes and respects the separation of powers enumerated in our Constitution so that we may advance beyond this 30-year malaise we've endured. I would welcome a legal scholar, even a Supreme Court justice of the Ho-Chunk Nation or a former Supreme Court justice, to come on my podcast and explain why there are obstacles in having our judiciary execute their constitutional duty to interpret the Constitution for all of the people's benefit. Again, I am sure, with my lack of knowledge of civil procedure, someone could explain why interpreting the Constitution becomes a seemingly insurmountable obstacle course. We are just letting attorneys run an interference in what I think should be a simple exercise. We're a relatively formative government. Our Constitution is only 28 years old. The U.S. Constitution is 246 years old. How, how have we accelerated to the point where we have embraced the white man's rule of law when we could simply set aside the technicalities and get to the point? Is an issue constitutional or not? That's all we need at this early stage in our government so that we may effectively advance the interests of the Ho-Chunk people. The president of the Ho-Chunk Nation has been trying to establish guardrails for the Ho-Chunk Nation legislature and keep them in their lane. All of the benefit of our government and our people. It sure would be helpful if the judicial branch of the Ho-Chunk Nation would get off the sidelines and get in the game. Wait, what just happened? Is it over? Who won? Yeah, it's over. We all lost. You know, this never would have happened if we went to Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison. Someone always wins. What do you mean? Well, you guys do know the difference between Class 2 and Class 3 gaming, right? Okay, in a Class 3 casino, you're playing against the house, so there's no guarantee a player has to win. Ever. It's kind of like playing games at Dan's house. Hey! And in a Class 2 casino, the players play against each other, and not the house. So someone always wins. So you're saying... He's saying if you want to win at something, you have to go to Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison, a Class 2 casino where someone has to win. Oh, great. Okay, how about this then? Visit Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison today. Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison! Wait, I think we can still win. Here we are, heading into another Thanksgiving. Deer season is uh, right around the corner. Or rifle, that is. It's kicking in, and hopefully it gets a little warmer out there. Hosinich, gee, Choka. 
as my grandchildren say to me. So I just want to wish all of you a happy and safe Thanksgiving. And maybe I'll run into some of you on Ho-Chunk Day up there in the Dells.